0: Gemma and I have two special guests today. We have Jean Wayner and Dr. Ellen Lachter. So everyone remembers Jean. She was, of course, in The Keepers. You'll remember her as Jane Doe during the 90s trial. Jean, you always, I feel like you don't really need an introduction. Jean is aware that the topic we are about to discuss is difficult to hear. So she warns that the conversation you are about to listen to is painfully raw and can't help but be upsetting especially if you are a survivor. However, it is necessary to talk about such things in order for us to separate victim from abuser so we can see how systematically premeditated Maskell and other perpetrators are in their efforts to make their victims believe that they are solely responsible for what happened to them knowing how triggering it is for her just to talk about what the abusers made her do, feel, and think. She recommends that survivors have their therapists or close supporters listen to this three-part interview before or with them. As always, don't feel that you need to listen. But to you, Dr. Lachter, you're probably new to most listeners, so can you tell me, who are you? and what it is you do. I'm
1: a psychologist who started as an art therapist back in the 70s, and then I think 82, and marriage and family therapist and psychologist in 1986. Started working with abused children with art therapy and later play therapy, and that took me into the world of working with children who had been subjected to extreme abuse, including ritual abuse and other kinds of sadistic abuse a production of child rape materials etc then through that i connected with people who were working with adult survivors of ritual abuse and learned more about what that is and because almost everybody subjected to ritual abuse has dissociative identity disorder I learned beginning in about 1986 about dissociative identity disorder and then learned a lot about it. It's a long learning curve to understand it, but I have. And ritual abuse is also very hard to understand because it's so. Evil and calculated and so secret, but I feel like I've got a reasonable understanding, which is a lot to have because it is so hard to get information on it. And I've published things about it, to speak about it at conferences, and I'm an activist against extreme abuse, and a lot of therapists come to me for help, information, guidance, and... I just try to do whatever I can to wake the world up to some of the horrible things that are happening, including the kinds of abuse that the Keepers shows happens, the cover up and all of the terrible things that happen with abuser networks that have power and that are placed in critical positions in society in order to continue to cover up their crimes. So I'm very interested in all of that and in trying to get both the mental health community, the public at large, and survivors also to know more about it, um, for survivors to be able to trust their own memories more. I've had people contact me through my website, so that's another thing I do. I have a website, and ritualabuse.org. That's the word, E-N-D, ritualabuse.org. And people contact me and they said, you know, I started having memories and then I read about false memory syndrome, which is not a real syndrome. It's a propaganda, artifact of a propaganda campaign. But They say, I read about false memory syndrome and I thought that all of my memories were false memories. And then I found your website and everything you're describing is what I've been through. And thank you so much because now I realize that I need to trust myself and not people who are saying that abuse memories are false. I'm trying to help survivors and I'm trying to help therapists and I'm trying to help the public and any law enforcement, anybody that I can, not just me, a lot of other people are doing this. A lot of other people who are fighting against extreme abuse within the therapeutic community and some within the law enforcement community and some, a lot of survivors and a lot of grassroots efforts like the like in the keepers so all of us together are trying to make people realize and put more pressure on the authorities that be to really investigate properly and to have more better staffing and more funding in law enforcement and child protection to not let this stuff be suppressed so that that's what i'm all about
0: you touched on this a little bit ago but how did you develop such an expertise in extreme abuse and dissociative disorders?
1: Most of us who do this work have been working with child abuse for a while. Any therapist who, as far as I'm concerned, is worth their salt knows about child abuse because I I believe that most mental disorders are actually the results of trauma of one kind or another. therapist who's really going to listen to their clients is going to figure out that trauma of one kind or another has... Cause their clients depression or anxiety or agoraphobia, which in my opinion is usually fear of people, not fear of open spaces. And it's based in trauma and all kinds of problems that people have, eating disorders, addictions, almost everything I believe is rooted in trauma. So people who start to work with that for a while eventually end up with a case where they start realizing that the person is presenting as different, very different, ways of being across sessions or even within sessions, or maybe they'll get an email from somebody saying, I'm so, and you don't know me yet, but, and it's from another quote unquote personality identity. Then that person starts going, oh my gosh, I wonder if this person has dissociated identities. They've had significant abuse of these other aspects of themselves or reporting things to me that this other part of themselves doesn't know about what's going on here. And then usually those people start reading and Seeking consultation. They join listservs like the Dissoc listserv, Dissociative Disorders listserv. It's got about a thousand therapists all talking about this stuff at a very high level. And so that's how I started. Mine was a child case and was like, oh my gosh, what is this? And then I sought consultation from peers. I found a group of peers who knew about ritual abuse and started meeting with them. Can't remember if it was every other week or every week or whatever it was. Sometimes people can't find a group like that, so they just find a therapist to consult with. And then they take training workshops. And I think that every decade we're getting substantially more knowledgeable about dissociative disorders, dissociative identity disorder, amnesia for abuse, recovering memories later, etc. And it's becoming A lot more accepted, a lot more something that people know is somewhat common, not rare, as people were taught, say, in the 1970s and 1980s. Starting in the late 1980s, people started realizing, wait a second, we're seeing a lot more of this than we thought. And now we know that it's a pretty common psychological response to trauma. So I learned, like most people did, getting thrown into the deep end of the pool, at least with a solid trauma background, but the deep end of the pool as far as dissociation, dissociative identity disorder and ritual abuse and having to go, wow, what is this? And learning. And then you you learn more and then you start talking to people and you present what you've learned and then other people learn about you and you end up getting more cases. And then you also end up noticing some of the people who you might not have realized before had dissociated identities or had extreme abuse. You start seeing the signs of it, and you start learning how to ask the right questions, and lo and behold, you find out that other people on your caseload, maybe from before, (laughs) have these issues, or you start identifying them quickly when they come into you, and all that has happened to me, and I think that's the kind of normal learning curve for most people who get into this work.
0: Dr. Lachter, what is extreme
1: that's a good question and because none of these terms have exact meanings where you can say it's definitely this and it's definitely not that. They're usually descriptors that have overlap with other things. Like where is the line between what is normal abuse? That's a ridiculous phrase that doesn't make sense. There is no such thing as normal abuse, but extreme abuse would be torture, maybe networked abuse, where there's an abuser network. Maybe very calculated abuse where it's planned and efforts to cause the victims to never, ever tell anybody and to perhaps even not remember what happened. So deliberate attempts to manipulate the mind to not maintain in consciousness the memory of what happened That would usually, most people would call that extreme abuse, abuse by very powerful parties in society who have a lot of ability to intimidate. I think most people would call ritual abuse extreme abuse. Would all clergy abuse count as extreme abuse? I wouldn't say necessarily. But it's a gradient. If you've got a solo abuser and he's not horribly violent and it doesn't go on in a prolonged way, that might not be considered extreme. But if you have a sadistic abuser and you're using threats to harm the person's family, and you know, especially if you're using torture or some of the things in the keepers, you, know, you would definitely call extreme abuse if you. Uh, take a child to a murder victim and says this is what happens when people talk that's extreme abuse a detective came and knocked on the door and i said is it renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season
2: 23 years ago 18 year old renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people if it's about time somebody's trying to do something.
1: She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack.
2: You know people are gonna judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me again my whole life.
1: You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com.
0: When you were first talking there, it reminded me of you were talking about there's no such thing as normal abuse. And when you think of extreme abuse, Sometimes people may say, oh, there must be a normal type of abuse. It reminds me of the line between talking about someone who has been murdered and someone who was tortured. So that's how I made that make sense in my head. I don't know if that helps anyone else. But another question that I wanted to ask you with your expertise is, what is your definition of ritual abuse? And does it always imply satanic worship?
1: A lot of people have very different definitions for what is ritual abuse. Some people would include clergy abuse that yeah. may have used rituals like some of the horrible things talked about in The Keepers. If a priest does something using religious paraphernalia, drinking something from a cup, or d- does certain things you know, to the body, that would be drawn from Catholicism, but they're doing it instead with semen or all of these kinds of, and God is authorizing this because you're a sinner, because you got molested as a child, which is the biggest absurdity I've ever Using the authority of God or the church, some people would call that ritualistic because it involves ritual and it involves the attribution of power to some deity or claiming that it's the will of some deity or That's allowing this or that they've been given the authority or they're acting in service of. Some people would call that ritual abuse, but others would say they would say ritual abuse would usually involve the worship of a malevolent deity like Satan or the god's goddesses, Egyptian, Druidic, Nordic wherever, African, South American, Mayan. And I'm not invested in a particular definition. I'm more interested in each person's account and their memories and what's traumatized them. Some people would say that ritual abuse is abuse done by perpetrators who understand how to manipulate the dissociative responses of the victim's. For instance, let's say an abuser takes a child to a barn and does some horrible abuse to the child and terrorizes the child and then says, when you're here, your name is Bonnie, and when you go home, your name is Susie. And the child is so terrified of this person that it's okay, I'm Bonnie when I'm here and I'm Susie when I'm home. And then the perpetrator says, and when you're home, Susie does not remember anything that happened here. But when you come here, Bonnie comes here and Susie does not know what's happening here. So that would be an abuser who's actually trying to induce dissociated parts of the psyche in order to protect themselves, so that the child will not disclose to any loving caregivers or any protective teachers or anybody you know who you might be able to otherwise tell so. that's a deliberate manipulation of dissociated identities, and even in that case, a deliberate inducement of the formation of dissociated identities. So some people, Claim that ritual abuse is abused by abusers who know how to manipulate those dissociative responses that naturally happen in states of terror or incredible humiliation. So let's say another example, maybe more simple, more general, more common would be a parent who molests a child in the middle of the night and the forces the child to have a, a sexual response. This is our secret, et cetera. And then the child wakes up in the morning and at first pretends it didn't happen. And now they're able to go to school and study and have friends and not have to think about this overwhelming, frightening, and many ways experience. Frightening because they were, this was done to them against their will, frightening because they had feelings they didn't understand, et cetera. Sexual responses are very frightening to children, especially when they're first imposed on them. They're very scared. And and they also may be old enough to know that I shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. Uh, This is morally wrong. So now there's tremendous shame. And all of that causes the child to dissociate it. And eventually, the child forms distinct personalities. The one who hears the abuser coming down the hall, walking in the room, and who's takes the sexual abuse and then goes to sleep. And then another aspect of the personality who awakens and has no idea that it happened. And then maybe the abuser would realize that it's happening and, and do little things to reinforce it. So now you know that you're not going to tell daytime Mary what happened tonight, or I'm going to call you such and such when you're here, or your name is such and such. So that would be where a case in which the child naturally formed dissociated identities and then the abuser further manipulated it to ensure that the child wouldn't till and maybe would be able to continue functioning and would continue to allow access. Which has a lot of definite and For the purposes um, of academics and everything, it's good, it's good to try to come up with definitions. But for the purposes of actually working with an individual, it's much more important to create a paragraph in your mind or with the person. This is what, the kind of thing you were subjected to, and then to work with that. For myself,
2: I believe that when I went into the confessional,
1: I had already,
2: as a younger child, been dissociating. I think when with going to my uncle, being down there versus being at home, I think that part of what Maskell plugged into was the fact and why I might have been more palpable or more pliable and why I'm actually still alive is I believe that I was already dissociating. And so part of what I did find is exactly what you're saying, but I think with his psychological background, what he was doing was he was feeding it. Instead of it being something that was my own personal coping mechanism, it goes right along with what you're saying. I believe that what he was doing was creating a bigger gap. He was creating a more intense separation because he understood. So for me, when he used the vibrator for the first time and I had an orgasm, one of the things that was so devastating was I had no idea what just happened. And so for him to say it was the evil in me coming out, and when I left, he said, you hated that, and I'm glad. And so I believe that what you're saying is 100% on target. And I also think that there are people who have that psychological knowledge and use it in order to create a bigger gap and a bigger separation.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's just so cruel. So, you know, a kid would have no way of understanding that response. A kid doesn't even understand sexual arousal. They don't naturally figure out any significant sexual arousal and, until significantly later. Little kids get crushes, but they're not genital, in my opinion. They're more heart based. they feel in love. The fairy tale, the genitals have nothing to do with it. You take a child and you push them into a sexual response, which can be done. I don't think they discover it normally without somebody doing something to them or showing them pornography or something like that, but you can induce that in a child. So it makes total sense. You would have that kind of reaction it would terrify you, and then he could name it whatever he wanted, and because you had no other framework to understand it, you would believe him. He has all the authority of the priesthood behind him and he sounds like a, a very manipulative, sadistic, terrifying person. So that in itself will widen the gap between the part who has to function in your normal life and the part who experiences the terror. Because just you just can't maintain an awareness of that level of fear, life threat, humiliation, helplessness heartbreak, all of that, you can't function with that in your consciousness. And then you're saying that he also deliberately widened the gap. That's how you have affirmed me. My therapists do too. Please
2: don't get me wrong. But when there were things that you, as someone who's worked with more of that population, you can hear from a therapist, it's almost like hearing it from your mother sometimes. And it's like there's a part sure. of it still saying, okay, yeah, sure. But it was so good to have it come from a different direction to the whole. Because for me, I always felt that I was doing a natural re- repression of memory. I was dissociating, and I do feel from the 27 years of work on this, that it was truly a my coping mechanism that was intact when I went in that confessional. What I have also felt is that there was also forced repression. And what you brought to the table was, separate from those who I work with all the time, an expert coming in saying, yes, yes. He took things that my uncle had done from the past and he replayed it in the room. And to me, that felt very much as the observer being the adult watching, being, trying to integrate with, it felt as if he were deliberately touching into a part of me that had already experienced something, Uh which made it feel like I deserved it or that I was participating. The same way with the vibrator, or with the orgasm, I didn't have that with my uncle. This was different. My uncle, it was a lot of other creepy things. But this was truly connected to what I went into confessional for, which was forgiveness. And he then what it was that would pull me in one hundred percent create more of a spit which was this shows how evil you are. This is why God can't forgive you. And so they internal conflict it created was so intense. That started really, I think, that point of real blocking that out because I couldn't deny that had come from me, that my response had come from me. I couldn't deny it. And so there was something that he did with that, bam, it was like he knew how to use the different tools and techniques in order to really make it even more intense and more worse and more separate
1: obviously he had the whole thing planned so you know, yes he has the vibrator there okay he knows what happened to you that's why he targets you he knows okay i've got a kid who i can exploit who already feels bad about herself I'm there i can use that and then he has the but he brings the vibrator he brings it there with the intention yes of inducing a sexual response. told me that he wanted me to start
2: participating, that I wasn't participating in my counseling, that he needed me to start participating if anything was going to go towards the direction that he was hoping for, that God could forgive me. At the beginning there, that was all of it focused on that. I had to participate. I was holding back.
1: Oh my God, that is so devious. And you would have no way of, First, you believe him. He's, he's a, I want to say, a representative of God. I don't really understand. They are. Or even today, now people like to say,
2: oh, it's so different. But the priests are the go-between. They're like the conduit. They're the channel. for. They're the vessel. So like when the bread and wine become body and blood, is through the grace that the priest has, which is truly representative of God. The same with the sacrament of the confessional going into there. That's what that priest was to do for me, was to be the connection to God forgiving me. These are very, very deeply taught, very deep within our faith. This isn't something that is, you had to be religious, quote unquote, to believe it. We were taught, these are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, and they are priests who can minister them. And so it is not. It's and it still is. There can be Eucharist given, but I guarantee you, I haven't been a part of the church for a long time. But it is the priest who has consecrated it before it goes out with the Eucharistic ministers, who may be female. If that has changed, I will say shame next time. I was wrong.
1: I'm just trying to grasp all of this. Got the whole thing planned. And the end point is then to say that this is evil inside of you. And then... The end point, Dr. Lacto was,
2: which ultimately happened, was he wanted me to do exactly what he wanted, the way he wanted, when I was in the room. And so it got to the point where all he had to do was walk towards the drawer that had the vibrator in it, and I would stop being afraid. I would stop looking like I wanted to leave. I would do, I would smile like he told me and I would do just because I thought that instrument showed my evilness and I didn't want anyone else to see it. So he used it. Now to me, that's ritualistic. To me, that is taking a human response and turning it against the individual as if so for me, what he was doing was taking really a natural response of the body and saying so I don't know, but to me that I see that and the efforts he did each time to condition me to not even have to use it, but still I did what he wanted because I was fearful. Is't that, or would you consider that ritualistic?
1: a lot of definitions would consider that ritualistic because he's got set of behaviors that he wants to happen each time and a way that he wants you to define yourself because of it he's going to use to his advantage and then using the right. authority of god to justify his actions to the victim To and to get them to submit because now it's under God's authority. All of that. Some people would say it's got to be a malevolent deity. I don't really care what kind of deity it is. If somebody's using intimidation by a deity or claiming that the deity wants this or something in order to abuse a child, to me, it's ritualistic.
2: They had the opportunity to take that man into a courtroom and to possibly put him where Mertzbacher is, which is another serial abuser, torturer. And he has life sentences. This man could have had the same thing. They had the
1: opportunity. And I know that, you know, I'm sorry, I digress. We all want them to suffer. And I think we want them to suffer because we want them to finally get to the point where they face what they did. I think we want them to realize the damage and the pain And the terror, I think we want them to not be able to hide from that reality anymore. I think we want them to have to know what they did to their victims and to have to feel the guilt. So I think we, there's nothing evil (laughs) in wanting Mm -hmm. to make this guy lock him up. And one of my friends says her abuser has to listen. He's her abuser instead has to listen to her therapy sessions. (laughs) <laughs> that that's that's a good one <laughs> and he is being forced and he has to listen to all of the pain and heartbreak and everything that that he did to him. he believes that that's <laughs> what happens when an abuser dies i think that's fair more than fair this is truly for other
2: survivors
1: because talking about
2: being brought to a regular, normal body reaction by somebody who you are inside saying, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, and I'm not engaging on some level, and then to have your body respond as if you want it, it is the thickest confusion a person could ever experience. So so I'm saying to those who are listening, and especially if anyone who is listening went to Keo, and they experienced that drawer or that cabinet and they know what it felt like to do things they would never have done because they were afraid he was going to bring your evil part out in front of someone else. We're not? We're not to blame. And I'm telling this to everyone who's listening who has ever. Experience such a thing. I'm telling it to me. I'm telling it to this little one. We are not to blame for responding to a bodily function, to a manipulation that would bring anyone to that kind of conclusion or climax wherever you were at. So I want survivors to hear what I'm saying, as hard as it is, that this is real. It is wrong. It was done. And it is something that we need to come to terms with is not our fault. I
1: completely agree with you. So really it's very brave of you to talk about this. I think this is also being talked about more within the trauma field. People are talking about unwanted sexual responses, even to rape as an adult. So sometimes, sometimes right. some kind of they don't know exactly how it works, but within the state of terror. While being raped, some women have very involuntary orgasms that have nothing to do with wanting any part of it. They wonder if it's some kind of excitation transfer where the sympathetic system arousal that comes with terror ah, yeah, gets directed yeah. into some of the same kind of sympathetic nervous system excitation that comes with sexual arousal. And some people are even wondering, is this some kind of evolution-driven response that women needed to evolve into having because women have been raped so much throughout history? Maybe it allows for a certain amount of lubrication, less amount of damage. Maybe people who had this response survived more, but others may have had worse internal bleeding. So they're looking at that. But definitely, I have worked with three-year-old children who were made to be orgasmic, who Once they learn about it, seek it themselves, try to find a way to induce. Once they learn about it, once they get past the anxiety and start seeking the sexual pleasure, as young as three years old, I I also remember one little four year old boy who got sexually abused by the neighborhood Disney film showing pedophile, the typical story. And that kid, when he would have erections, he would get really upset. He would Cry to his mother, scream in fear, make it stop. Those feelings. It's confusing. It's even, it's confusing to a little kid. It's hard enough for a 12 or a 13 year old who begins to have these feelings and to try to figure out what there's a certain amount of anxiety, even within normal development without any sexual abuse. When these feelings start happening, we need a framework to understand them. That's where your little friends come in. Oh, this is, this is about sex. This is, <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, I have.
2: One thing that I would like to just ask you of this, I have found since I've been remembering and connecting and reintegrating that I have been, and I'll say this, I don't know if anyone else will be able to say yes to this too. What disgusts me the most in the last, and I need your opinion on this from if you've heard this too, is things that he would use. He did have books of little kids who were dressed in, very provocative underwear, uh-huh. and he would just set them out for you to look through. One of the things that that I find is there are things that I would that would that are terrible to me, and yet they excite me still. Right. Physically, I am turned on by things that are the worst things that I want to, because of things that he conditioned me to be to be turned on to. Do yes. you?
1: hear that, that people still have body reactions to? Absolutely. I think it's unavoidable. I think that, yes, having been put into situations as a child where you are brought to some kind of sexual arousal, either through stimulation, like you described with the tools that he was using, or by showing a child pornography, that can be enough to create a lot of sexual arousal or witnessing other people having sex or whatever kind of exposure, direct or indirect, will pair together, classically condition sexual responses and those stimuli. And I think that there's also something about the earliest sexual Feelings and what they're associating associated with. I wonder if that kind of creates a critical period. Lorenz and the ducks, where I think his name Conrad Lorenz was a scientist who decided to be there when the ducks came out. The ducklings came out of the eggs, and the ducklings saw him, and then they started following him like oh. he was the mother duck. And he came up with the theory of imprinting that there was a critical period in the little mind of the little ducklings that would cause them to bond to the first. Animate creature that they saw, which in this case was Lorenz instead of the mother duck. So I think that when a person is sexually exposed to something as a child, it creates a critical period where now this becomes a particularly exciting sexual stimulus for that person because it's their it's the dawning of their sexuality. Now I've often thought, and I checked this out with a survivor colleague who I respect a lot, who never fails to. Out brilliant me within two minutes. (laughs) I I I said to her. So what I tell my clients is, okay, you're having sex with a partner, and it's somebody who you want to be having sex with, and there's no negative feeling about you. This is a choice. This is a good situation. It's healthy. There's nothing destructive about it. And then your mind flashes back on the sexual abuse because then you're aroused, and then you go back to a previous situation in which you were aroused, and then you're horrified, you know, that you had that arousal response while you were with a partner, an appropriate partner, and, you know, what's wrong with me and this and that. And I tell them, listen, you you cannot help this. Your mind will flip there because it's part of, if you want to get neurobiological, it's part of the synaptic network of all of your sexual responses. It's just all associated memories, feelings, et cetera. So you're going to remember, you're going to flash on it. It was sexually arousing because the abuser made sure it was. Not all sexual abuse includes sexual arousal. Some just hurt children, and there maybe there is no arousal. But if there was arousal, it's part of that associative network, and you will flash back on it. And instead of condemning yourself and being horrified, you go, okay, this is inevitable. It's part of my experiences with uh, sexual responses. So I tell them that, okay, you've got to just say to yourself, okay, my mind went back there. I'm not a bad person. This is a normal artifact of having been abused or exposed to sexuality at a young age. It doesn't matter. It's okay. I can let it go instead of hate myself, and I can just focus back where I am now. So the real trick is whether you condemn yourself as evil or bad or whether you understand it psychologically and go okay so what i i'm that happened i don't have to linger on it and sometimes you do have to train yourself create a whole new way of being sexual so let's say that somebody had been maybe a lot of pain was associated with arousal because of sexual abuse or something and that was the only pathway the person knew toward a full sexual response The person may, without condemning themselves, that's really the key. Because if you condemn yourself, you get stuck and you'll never get past it. But you go, okay, I have that, but I can learn to do it another way. I can learn to just experience uh, pleasure without pain. I have trained myself to focus on the sexual sensations without the pain, but I can develop the capacity to do this without pain. It's like, I hate to use this example because of the fact that it was used in your abuse. But let's say in a normal adult woman, she developed a dependence on a vibrator for orgasm. Okay. On her own, no abuse. She just learned to use it. And now that she thinks that's the only way that she can have an orgasm, she might be a little upset about that because she, now she's with her partner and she wants to be able to learn how to um, be aroused by manual stimulation or oral stimulation or something like that, it's going to take a little work to stay with the sexual feelings with a less intense stimulus and to learn how to create a whole new pathway to a sexual response without a vibrator. I'm not saying a vibrator is a bad thing. I'm just saying she could create another pathway. So anyway, so my survivor friend, I asked her about this and I said, do you agree that you know when a survivor of child sexual abuse is having sex and their mind goes back to the sexual arousal that they had while they were sexually abused if it was that kind of sexual abuse that they just need to say okay, that's normal it's not bad I'm not bad it's just an association another time I had sexual arousal I can let it go and focus back here on being in the present in this space that I'm in with this person right now she goes, yep that's what I tell people too so it's like, okay a survivor tells me that's going to do it (laughs) (laughs)